This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study uh, this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our time in his word today. Our Father, it's so important that we correctly handle your word and that we correctly understand it because it is in your word that we have truth. Throughout the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, this is the claim that Scripture consistently makes, that this is your word to us, not our word about you. This derives from you and was revealed through the process of inspiration under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, through the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament, whereby we can come to understand who you are and who we are, our need for salvation, our need for a Savior, the recognition that there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves savable or to save ourselves, but that all is done by you. Now, fathers, we continue our study in the Gospels, learning about our Savior and his life and ministry on this earth. We pray that you might challenge us with the importance, the significance, the reality of that life and what that means in terms of transforming us as into, as Matthew teaches, into true disciples, students, dedicated students of your word and of your son, that we might go forth proclaiming the gospel to all the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying in Matthew. Matthew is the gospel related to the kingship of Jesus, the emphasis that Jesus is the son of David. Not that the other gospels don't emphasize that, but each gospel has a different emphasis, as we've seen. Mark emphasizes Jesus as the servant of God. Luke emphasizes Jesus as the son of man. John emphasizes Jesus as the son of God. But Matthew emphasizes Jesus as the son of David emphasizing that he is the Messiah. We've seen that Matthew has more allusions and quotations from the Old Testament than any of the other Gospels because of this particular emphasis. Now, in the Matthew account, we focused a little bit last time on the angel appearing to Joseph, comforting in Joseph with the reality of, of the virgin conception and birth because he was contemplating putting aside uh, Mary with his discovery of the fact that she was uh, pregnant. And after that, the angel also informed Joseph, as he had Mary, that the child should be named Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew, because he would save his people from their sins. Now, what I want to do today, I had hoped to look at the compress and combine both the uh, birth accounts uh, and the uh, adoration accounts in Luke and Acts, and we just don't have the time to do that. There's too much to cover. So today we're going to complement our study in Matthew by looking at Luke. Primarily in this series, I want to focus on Matthew as we come to understand the life of Jesus, but uh, at times we'll, we will go to uh, the other Gospels in order to pick up some additional uh, information. Uh, this chart that I've been using the last few weeks is expanded. We did send this out in an email. Uh, it comes out of the Logos uh, Bible software 
uh, infographics. They're doing a lot of work on developing charts and images and things of that nature, and they do a pretty good job with that. This is quite a long, it's one long chart, and so we broke it down into a PDF, and I think we emailed that out. But this is just the opening of it dealing with the uh, the birth of our Lord. We have the angel coming with the initial announcement uh, to Mary in the upper left. Then underneath that, there's a depiction of their travels on a donkey to uh, Bethlehem. Then we have the arrival, the birth of our Lord and Savior, and the adoration of the uh, of our Lord, and we have the picture of the uh, little picture of a manger scene there, and then the arrival of the um, of the Magi, the worship of the shepherds. So this gives you a visual chronology of these events. Today, what I want to do as we go through this is we need to look at Luke. We look at the story with some fresh eyes in some ways. There's a a, a narrative that comes out at Christmas that is not always correct about the birth of uh, the birth of our Lord, and it goes something like this: the Joseph and Joseph, Joseph and Mary traveled from Bethlehem, uh, from Nazareth, excuse me, to Bethlehem because there was a decree from Caesar Augustus, and so. Uh, Joseph puts Mary on the donkey, and off they go, and this is about a four or five days of travel. And according to this uh, traditional historical narrative based on a, uh, a lot of these things come out of a, uh, a work that was written about 200 A.D. that had a lot of fanciful, imaginary uh, elements to it. On the night that they arrived in Bethlehem, she went into labor and gave birth. Now, think about that a minute. That would mean that when they left Nazareth, that she was pretty close to having that baby, and that doesn't seem quite normal to be taking someone that advanced in pregnancy and put them on a donkey for the next four days, and then arriving in Bethlehem just as she goes into labor and giving birth that very night. And they arrive in Bethlehem, the city of David, which is Joseph's family's hometown, and apparently there's nobody there to open their doors to let them come and stay at their home. So they're left to just go find a cave somewhere with the animals, and uh, that's where they end up staying the night and maybe a few nights after that. Usually you have other elements like they're depicted traveling through the desert, and that's not exactly true, because so many of these elements are written by uh, Gentiles, by Western Europeans who had zero knowledge of Jewish customs, zero knowledge of the geography of, of uh, Israel, and zero knowledge of the climate of Israel. We've also heard different attempts to, about different attempts to locate the time of Jesus' birth, there are those who, for many years, I heard, say, well, he couldn't have been born in Bethlehem in dead winter. It does snow in that area. Bethlehem is just about five miles from Jerusalem. It's just a little bit of a southern suburb. And last year they had a record snowfall in late December in Jerusalem. So it can get quite cold there. And the argument was that, well, there wouldn't have been any shepherds out in the fields at that time of year. That's not true either. There is an, there's a reason why those shepherds were in the fields of Bethlehem at that particular time. I'm not saying that Jesus was born on December 25th or even in the winter, but uh, because the scripture just doesn't make it clear. But a lot of these things that we've heard over the years just aren't quite true. And a lot of things have come to light even in the last 15 or 20 years as a result of uh, more and more archaeological uh, archaeological discoveries. Now, when we come to Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we come to a verse that is really very controversial, Luke 2, 1, and 2. Here we go. Luke 2, 1, and 2. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, if you ever watch any of these shows about the real history of Jesus that shows up on the History Channel or Discovery Channel, PBS, or one of those types of channels, 
they usually interview a host of extremely liberal theologians. By liberal theologians, I mean those who believe that the uh, that the New Testament was written. In some cases, they believe the New Testament was written 200 years after the events that are depicted, that over the course of those 200 years, a lot of legends uh, came in and developed, and then these are finally collected and through a process of several editors are written down, and this becomes the story or the myth of Christianity. So they approach the scriptures if this is just another human book and if this is just another fraud foisted by religious people upon a uh, credulous public. That's their orientation. You have the most radical groups or like the people in what was called the Jesus Seminar back in the 90s who had five different categories of veracity that they would apply to the scripture. Uh, on one end, it didn't happen and was made up 100%. On the other end, it probably uh, what did happen. And very little, very few verses in the Gospels fit that category because their assumption was that most of this is just the, the fallible word of human beings. But the Bible claims not to be the fallible word of human beings, but to be the very revelation of God inspired by God through the prophets and apostles and therefore written in the original without error. And so we must give that uh, credibility when we approach the scriptures. And never once has has there been an archaeological or historical discovery that discounted the scripture. In fact, one of the more well-known biblical archaeologists, a Jewish, Nelson Gluck, back in the 60s, stated that never once has has an archaeological discovery contradicted anything in the Bible. But there are some things that are in the Scriptures that we have not yet been able to document or prove through history. But there are things that we can can validate, and, and Luke is a very careful historian, and there have been identified somewhere between 80 and 90 historically verifiable events in um, in the Gospel of Luke. What I mean by historically verifiable is that if we had enough information, we could verify it historically. For example, we have the mention here of a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus. So we know that Caesar Augustus was a historical individual, so we can verify that. We know that there were uh, various uh, Senate decrees that went out. The word here that's translated decree is the Greek word dogma, from which we get our word dogma and dogmatics, which is a a branch of theology. Uh, The word dogma in Greek means a decree. It can mean a doctrine, a teaching. Uh, But the Latin equivalent were the words placidum and decretum, and this refers to formal actions or decisions that were made by the by the Roman Senate. And so that's what this reflects, and we know that that can be documented historically. And we also know that, um, that there were several of these types of decrees that were initiated under uh, Augustus, when he became Caesar, as they were organizing the empire, he was a brilliant administrator, and during this time there were at least three documented uh, worldwide uh, decrees or census uh, takings that were similar uh, to this. And so that can be documented. But what we can't document is this particular one. So does that mean it's invalid? And that Luke made it up? No, because uh, as I read in one particular work, of the 85 or 86 uh, historical events that could be verified, all but one or two are verified. It's not that the others have been uh, invalidated. It's just that we don't have the information to properly validate it. But when you have a careful historian like Luke who claims to be a researcher and to have identified eyewitnesses from the time period, and he has, uh, from what what we can document, a 98% accuracy rate and the 2% you can't validate 
are, are just uh, because you don't have enough information, then you can give him the benefit of the doubt because he's demonstrated that he is an accurate recorder of history and investigator of history. And so we're told of this, of a particular decree, the senatorial decree that went out from Rome in order to uh, take account, an accounting of the uh, those who lived in the empire. Now, as we look at this issue that comes up, there's about five things that we need to identify as we go through the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus. First of all, we need to find out something about this census. Second, we know that Luke locates this at a time in the second verse when Quirinius was governing Syria. And so Luke is careful to pinpoint when these things happen. Now, the question should be, if that locates this census at a particular time during the governorship of Quirinius, why would Luke say that if it could not be verified, at least at the time that he was writing? The third thing that we need to identify as we go through this is the location of Jesus' birth. Was he born in a barn or was he born in a cave, or was he born in a house? Fourth, what did the angel say? And this comes up in uh, verse 14, glory to God in the highest is the new King James, and King James translated, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. If you have an NIV, NASB, ESV, RSV, or any of the other alphabet soup of Bible translations that are based on the Westcott-Hort, basically the Westcott-Hort theory, you have different wording, so which is right. And then one we'll get to next week is who were the Magi and why were they important. So Luke begins talking about this decree that is in the time of Caesar Augustus and is sent forth by him. Now, just a couple of things about him. His birth name was Octavian. Uh, he was born in 63 B.C., and he died in A.D. 14. He was Julius Caesar's uh, great-nephew and his adopted heir. When Caesar died, he was uh, about 14 years of age, and he was to take his inheritance, but Mark Antony had taken control of the army, so there was a lot of intrigue and duplicity. Once Octavian defeated Mark Antony, the Senate did not give him his triumph, and so he allied himself with Mark Antony against the Senate. There was further uh, wars that took place, and then there were those who were fighting for the old uh, Roman Republic, uh, Brutus and Cassius, and eventually uh, Octavian and Mark Antony defeated uh, them at the Battle of uh, uh, at the Battle of Philippi. This led to the period known as the Second Triumvirate, where Lepidus and Mark Antony and uh, Octavian ruled. But eventually, they divided up spheres of influence in the Roman Empire, and they eventually fell apart. Mark Antony came under the uh, seductive spell of Cleopatra of Egypt and they uh, sought to seize control of the empire from Octavian, and he defeated them in a massive naval battle around 32 B.C., and at this point Octavian is given the uh, tri his triumph, and he becomes the sole ruler in 31. The, he becomes the sole ruler of the Roman Empire from 31 B.C. to A.D. 14. He is particularly known for his administrative genius, and at that time he, is, uh, he institutes what becomes known later because of his organization, because of his uh, administrative skill, the Roman Empire goes into a time of stability and peace that lasts for about 300 years, two to 300 years. There are times when there are, uh, there are revolts. There's times when there are uh, attacks from outside. But basically, at least through the first century, there is an incredible time of peace and stability in the Roman Empire known as the Pax Romana, Roman peace. And this is uh, seen in a verse from Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, ties into this where uh, we read that at the full, when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son born of a woman. And so we see that God is orchestrating human history behind the scenes so that a t- he's worked through human history, we understand from our study in the Old Testament, for approximately 4,000 years to bring human history to, to a point where revelation has prepared pe- people, specifically the Jewish people, to be able to understand and identify who the Messiah would be and to prepare the world for a particular time when the Messiah would come and where there would be peace throughout a large segment of the, of the world uh, that would uh, enable the uh, spread of the gospel. Uh, because of the highway system that the Romans developed, because there was internal peace throughout the empire, this was uh, made it possible for the gospel to spread throughout the Roman Empire and then from that base uh, throughout the world. Now, in Luke chapter 2, verse 2, there is another problem, and that is identify, identifying Quirinius. Now, we know for sure that Quirinius was the governor in Syria from about A.D. 4. But that is some time after the birth of Christ. We know a few things about this time period, and there have been four, or excuse me, five basic problems that have been identified. Now, when you watch some of these shows on PBS or Discovery Channel or History Channel, and I watched one just a few weeks ago, they immediately come out with this material and say, see, there was this Quirinius, this census didn't exist. Quirinius wasn't the governor then. None of this information that Luke got was right. He's just a, he's just a confused, bumbling historian, and you can't trust any of it. And this is from people that are supposedly Christian theologians and leaders. And so that just bamboo, bamboozles the, uh, viewing public because they think they have some kind of validity. But their starting point, as I said earlier, is that this really isn't true. And so it's really hard for them to find anything that is true. As Christians, we start from the viewpoint that it is true, but that doesn't mean we we, we put blinders on and we don't investigate the historical realities. But if you don't expect something to be true, you usually can't find anything to make it true. And if you think that, well, I think it's probably true, you usually can you usually discover that there is evidence in its favor. Now, here are the five problems that have been identified since at least the middle of the 19th century. First of all, the claim is that nothing is known of a general empire-wide census in the time of Augustus. Second, they claim that no Roman census would require Joseph to go to Bethlehem. Third, they claim that there would be no census in the area of Palestine at the time of Herod the Great because it was semi-autonomous. Fourth, they claim that Josephus, the Jewish historian from later in the first century, he was had been a Jewish general in the revolt against Rome. Uh, after he was defeated, he uh, he, be, turned, he he was left alive, and he became a, uh, basically a vassal to uh, Titus and wrote various histories of the Jews, including a history of the Jewish revolt. And in his History of the Jews, he writes of a census in A.D. 6. Now, A.D. 6 is approximately 9 or 10 years after the birth of Jesus. It is about 8 or 9 years after the death of Herod. And so, obviously, anybody who was trying to write history would understand that the census taken at that time when Quirinius was governor would not be the census that it, that Luke identifies. So he would, Luke would be speaking of a different census. And Luke knew uh, about, the, because at the time of the uh, AD 6 census, there was a, uh, a Jewish revolt in Galilee against the census. And nothing like that happened uh, at the time uh, of Christ. And Luke in Acts actually refers to this revolt that took place uh, in uh, in Galilee, so he was aware of that. He was not uh, he was not ignorant. Too often, modern scholars think the ancients were really uh, rather stupid. A fifth thing they come up with is that Quirinius could not have been the governor of a census 
at the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, since the governor's records of this period are well known and Quirinius is not mentioned. However, all of these have been answered numerous times and in numerous ways by scholars who have investigated these answers. First of all, Luke's census is not the one in AD 6 uh, because it's tied to the time of Herod's death. And we know for sure... We know those two dates really well from other other historical uh, information. We know that Herod died no later than April of 4 B.C. Now, some of you may be confused because you think, well, wasn't Jesus born in zero? I mean, B.C. and A.D. stand for before Christ and after Christ. How could Jesus have been born before 4 before Christ? And that's because when these dates were uh, established in the uh, Gregorian calendar, they misidentified certain key dates, and so it's off a little bit. Herod dies in no later than April of 4 B.C., which means Jesus was born somewhere between 6 B.C. and uh, uh, 4 B.C., probably sometime in, in 5, maybe in 6 B.C. So this is a good 10 years before this census mentioned by Josephus, and Luke would be uh, fully aware of that. Second, their claim that no Roman census, uh, that nothing is known of a general empire-wide census at the time of, of, of Augustus. The fact is Augustus is known to have instituted at least three empire-wide censuses during this period. In, ad- in addition, there were other periodic regional censuses that were taken. And uh, we have evidence of this in areas of Syria, Gaul, and Spain as well. And it's clear that as part of his organization and administration of the empire, that Rome was active in registering the citizens in its empire, especially for uh, tax purposes. So it's not unlikely that he would have uh, issued a, uh, an edict for a census to be taken in the area of uh, Israel and Judea at the time of Christ. Third, the issue that's raised earlier uh, is the issue related to Joseph going to Bethlehem. And this is not a problem because we do have evidence that when Rome instituted these, these censuses, that they would do so under uh, the prevailing traditions of local peoples. And so it was a tradition in Judea and in Israel that that the people would return to their ancestral homeland uh, for registration. And it's very likely that that Joseph may have had some some uh, land possessions that were his by virtue of inheritance, which is why he would have had also returned uh, to Bethlehem. There's also an objection about Mary's presence that uh, Mary would not have been along if she was that advanced in pregnancy. Well, first of all, I don't think the ancients were quite as sensitive to uh, a woman's condition as we are today. But aside from that, the text does not give us the any indication that she was that advanced in her pregnancy when she hit town. That's the tradition is she arrived in town and immediately went into labor and the child was born that night. But as we look at uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 6, all we're told is so it was while they were there, that is, during the time they were in Bethlehem. And that could have been several months after they initially arrived. Uh, during the time that they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So there's nothing in the text that indicates that that happened right away. Also, there are very various reasons Mary was brought along. By this time, Joseph and Mary are, are, are married. Uh, he could have brought her along for any number of reasons. He, didn't, he knew he would be gone for a while. He didn't want to leave her back in uh, Nazareth uh, alone. Uh, he didn't want her to be there to go through the... Uh, birth of the child while he was not present. Uh, she might have been open to ridicule because she'd become pregnant and it was known. And there could have been a variety of different reasons, either individually or together, that caused him to want to take her with him uh, to Bethlehem. 
Regarding the objection about Herod's rule, there's nothing about Herod's rule which would have prevented a Roman census, he, even though it was a semi-independent uh, kingdom. It was not completely independent. He was under 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 Rome. In fact, he uh, he had honored uh, uh, Octavian that when he became emperor, he built a harbor, the most significant harbor in the eastern Mediterranean is at Caesarea, named for Augustus, Caesarea Maritima. Those of you who have been to Israel with me have been there. It's a beautiful harbor. Also, ancient Samaria, that had been the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, which is where uh, Ahab and the Amrids had built their their palace. This last year I had a chance to go to that archaeological site. It's too bad that it uh, probably won't be fully excavated. It's an enormous site, probably much larger than Beit Shan, or uh, maybe it could rival Ephesus. It's a huge area, but it was rebuilt by uh, by Herod the Great and named Sebasta, which is the Greek for Augustus. And it was probably the most pagan city in the area of, uh, of, of Herod's reign because it was far enough away from Jerusalem to where he didn't have to take into account Jewish sensibilities. And from what's been discovered there, it was, uh, you know, it was a full expression of Roman, uh, Roman paganism. And so Herod definitely cooperated and uh, honored the emperor in Rome. Now, in terms of dealing with this identification of Quirinius, while some have argued that he may have been governor twice, there's not a lot of information there, but uh, the word governor could mean administrator. And there's just a lack of information. There's not contradictory information. And it's very likely, we know that Cyrenius was a bureaucrat from Rome, that he had held various uh, uh, positions in Syria and in what became known as Turkey in those areas uh, during this time period in the first decade of the, uh, you know, between roughly 9 B.C., and up to the time he became governor of, of uh, Syria. And it's very likely that he might have initially been put in charge of, of the administration of this census, and then as his responsibility shifted and he became governor, he became identified with that particular uh, census. The word governor itself may not mean, does, is not restricted to meaning governor, it could just mean administrator. And so there are a number of ways in which uh, this could be understood uh, without doing damage to either the history or the text. Now, in verse 3, we read a summary of that introduction where Luke says, So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now, here's a map for you so that you can become geographically oriented. This is an area that from... Uh, roughly down here at Beersheba, up to the north, which is off the top of the map, but not too far above. Uh, here's Caesarea Philippi. Dan is just located just a little bit to the north of there. From Dan to Beersheba is about 140 miles, roughly like from here to Lufkin, Texas. That's not a very large area. And within that, you have the location of Bethlehem here and Nazareth here. So this is a distance of about... 90 miles, so it's only about a four- or five-day journey. Uh, Nazareth was located in Galilee, and if you were to travel from Galilee to Bethlehem, your elevation would be going up, and this is why verse 4 says Joseph went up from Galilee. In English idiom, up means you go north. If you go down, you go south. But when you're in Israel, up is elevation, down is going down toward the sea. And so when you traveled from Nazareth to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem, you would be going up. Now, I have a collection of photographs. I have collect photographs I've taken of modern uh, Bethlehem. But I have a collection of black and whites that were taken in the late 19th century, and I like to go to those because they give us a closer idea of what the area was like 
at the time of Christ. Now, you look at pictures today because of the massive population growth and expansion. You, you can't get any idea of what, what this area was like. So this is what Bethlehem looked like uh, about uh, a little over 100 and 120 years ago. The church over here is the church of the uh, Church of the Nativity, which is the traditional site of the birth of Christ. Now, that's always an odd thing for people to go to because they go in, and it's a, a Eastern Orthodox type of church, and it's very odd with the uh, bells and smells and everything else and all the things that have been built there. And a lot of time, Protestants from America go there, and they go to the Holy Sepulcher, they go to the Church of the Nativity, and they say, you know, that really didn't mean very much. Why did they do that? Well, if they, if those, if the, the church had not built those structures there, then it'd probably be a Holiday Inn there or Disney World or something like that there today. So, so while it's not what we would necessarily like the best, it did preserve those locations from being developed, uh, by various commercial projects in the, in the 20th century. Uh, the area of Bethlehem was rural, surrounded by various fields where uh, sheep were kept where camels were kept, and so this just gives you a little bit of an idea. It's not a barren desert area. It's surrounded by olive groves and various uh, other uh, uh, agricultural uh, endeavors. Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, the area in the, in the just south of Jerusalem, to the city of David. I want you to notice the emphasis on David here. For when the angels appear to the shepherds, they say in verse 11, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The emphasis, the repetition here, reminding us that Jesus is a descendant of King David and therefore the, uh, the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant. Joseph goes up to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, again emphasizing Joseph's physical descent of royalty as we identified in, the, uh, in Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. He goes to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And then verse 6, we're told, so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. We don't know. That could have been a week. It could have been a couple of months. We have no idea. Now, this is a typical representation that we have from the uh, Renaissance, and where you have uh, it's more European than it is uh, uh, Middle Eastern, and you have the presence of shepherds and the Magi, and they're all together, and she's all dressed in their uh, near a house, and you have the angels overhead, and we've all seen the different uh, creches and nativity scenes that are popular today. But what we discover is that she went, the, the text says that she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Now, once again, we hear that many times people say swaddling cloths were really the, that's what, that's what uh, the dead were wrapped in. Babies were wrapped in. They were just strips of cloth, and you, they were they had multiple purposes. You would not only use them to wrap the babies, you would also use them to wrap a corpse, and to uh, because the Jews did not practice embalming, but they would add various uh, uh, incense and various spices within the wrappings. So there's a hint of a foreshadowing of his death, but there are various people who make too much of that. The, the, the basic word just indicates strips of cloth, which had a variety of uses, as I've indicated. This is a picture of a stone manger uh, in the area called the Shepherd's Field, just outside of, of Bethlehem. But the problem we have is when we read the word manger, coming from a Western European background, we immediately think of a barn. Or, and often what has been taught about the birth of our Lord is that he arrived at the local uh, Motel 6, the light wasn't left on, there was no room at the inn, and so they had to go find a, a barn somewhere where they could bed down with the cattle and, and the sheep. Uh, another view, one that I have taught in the past, is that this was more likely a caravansary, which was more like a roadside park 
where the caravans who traveled through the area would stop. There were various uh, uh, covered areas where different groups could stay. And if you arrived late, then you would it would be built. These would be built along a, a hillside where there were caves, and the animals were put in the caves for shelter. And so, if you arrived late, you would end up having to camp out in the caves. That's not quite what we've discovered is the the case. The word, therefore, translated in in Luke 2.7 is the word kataluma. This is not the word technically meaning an inn or a hotel. It referred to the guest room in a house, the usually the upper room in a house, and that's the word we find in Luke 22.11 when Jesus sent the disciples to a house in order to get access to the upper room or the guest room where they would celebrate the Passover with his disciples. It was the uh, upper room inside of a house where the guests would stay when they came. And so what this passage is saying is there was no room at the guest room. There were others who were already there. And so rather than staying in the guest room, they had to stay at a place where there was a manger. Now, Luke 10.34 is in the context of the story of the Good Samaritan, which is the story of a, of a traveler who is beaten up and robbed and uh, no one stops by the side of the road to help him except a Samaritan who was uh, not viewed with uh, special special care by the Jews. And so this Samaritan comes, binds his wounds, washes him off, puts him on his animal, and takes him to an inn. This is the Pandokian. This is the Greek technical word for an inn or hotel. That's not the word that's used in Luke 2. Now, what we've discovered is that both ancient and modern homes, I mean, contemporary homes, this would be in the more of a poverty area in the Middle East today, were built in such a way that they would have a place within the home where animals, their, their prized animals, could be brought inside in inclement weather. And so what we have in this slide is a, a side view of this area where you have an, uh, an entry door here, and this part of the room is this stable area indicated on the uh, overhead view here is where they would allow two or three of the animals to come in. It would be below the main level of the first floor of the house. Maybe the house was built up against the side of a of a hill where there was a cave, and they would make use of that. And then they would have a couple of stone mangers uh, carved into the ground where these animals could feed. Then you would have the main living room of the of the family. These homes are rather small. And then it's often above, not depicted here, but up above, there was a guest room, the kataluma. And if the guests were there already, then uh, the Guests that got got there late would stay down in this area. It's also very likely, here's another uh, illustration of this, where you see the upper room uh, upstairs, and down here you have the uh, area where the animals would be. It's also likely, and here's another depiction, it's also likely that by giving birth, Mary would have been rendered ceremonially or ritually unclean. And so it's also likely that she would have uh, preferred to have privacy by staying in that particular area, and it would have kept her from bringing ritual uncleanness upon the entire house. Now, this helps us to understand the passage in, in Matthew. When the Magi come, they, it says they come to the house, and traditionally I know, I've taught, that this indicates they were not at there the first night. But if, if this is true, and I believe this is, then, then Jesus is born in a house. He's just born in the uh, area where the animals would be kept inside of the house, and that is, and the manger was a perfect place uh, to place the baby. There's all kinds of interesting things that you can, uh, locations where you can find to put a baby in some of these areas. Uh, my good friend Randy Price was taking me through the, uh, Israel Museum a couple of years ago, and we were at the Arad uh, uh, display from uh, the, where they had brought the altar from Arad. And I think we have some pictures floating around somewhere of Kelly Karn. 
uh, being laid out upon that altar when we went a few years ago. Uh, but that's not the original altar that's there now. That's just a uh, that's that's just a duplicate that they've made. But the original was there in in the Israel Museum, and I was standing there with Randy's wife Beverly. I've known them for like known them since forever, and she was laughing because, of course, now it's all roped off and you can't touch the altar, and they have signs, you know, don't touch anything. And she's laughing because that was the only flat place they could put the baby, and she could change her her baby when they were working on that dig back in the 70s. And so she laughed. She said, well, you can't touch it now, but I used to change Elizabeth's diapers on that altar. So you just use whatever is handy to place the baby. Well, that's what the manger was. Now we're told in Luke 2.8 that the, there were at the same time shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock at night. Now, a lot of folks have thought, well, they really couldn't be out there in the winter. But this is a special flock. It was the flock near the tower of the flock called Migdal Eder in the, in the Hebrew. This was a special flock. This provided the daily sacrifices for the temple, which isn't that far away. And these were not normal shepherds. These weren't your average shepherds because shepherds were in the bottom rung in the uh, social strata of the ancient world, and they were considered to be continuously unclean because they could never get away from their sheep to go to uh, be ritually cleansed at the temple. And these shepherds had to be ritually clean because they are taking care of the, uh, the, the flock that produces the daily sacrifices in the temple. So these weren't your normal run-of-the-mill shepherds. These were Levitical priests who took care of the Levitical flock that provided the sacrifices for the temple. And they are the ones that are uh, that receive the announcement uh, from the angel. And behold, an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. That's the Shekinah glory. Uh, filled up the sky, and they were greatly afraid. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings, that is, good news, the gospel of great joy, which will be for all people. And then the angel said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's the New King James and King James Version. That reflects what is known as the Byzantine or majority text, and I think that's a superior reading. The NASB reflects the reading in the Westcott Hort text, which it comes from some older manuscripts, but as we've studied, older manuscripts sometimes are not as good as newer manuscripts who faithfully copied even older manuscripts. Why would they change it? They would change it because they didn't understand the context and they didn't understand the uh, Jewish background. The announcement on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, is what the Messiah was to bring, peace on earth. We have to locate this within the context of the messianic announcement that that the kingdom of God was at hand. If the king and the kingdom were to come into existence, then there would be peace. This would be the fulfillment of the prophecies in Isaiah that the uh, swords would be beaten into pruning shears and the spears into pruning hooks and man would make war no more. That's what the the announcement of verse 14 fits the messianic uh, kingdom claim. The other one understood why it's changed because the concept of the announcement of the kingdom got lost in the early church, and so uh, they would have thought, well, there's only peace to those who accept the Messiah, so we don't want there to be any misunderstanding, so let's just change a, a word or two or a grammatical ending, and it'll make a little more sense. The result was that when the angels left after they announced that uh, the Messiah had been born, the shepherds said, let's go into Bethlehem and see what the Lord has done. And they came with haste. They ran into Bethlehem where they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger just as they had been told. And when they saw him, what did they do? This is our, this is our action plan. Why is Christmas important? Because it gives us the message. It gives us what we're to go tell people, and that's immediately what they did. They're excited, and they start telling everybody that the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. 
And what was the result? All those who heard it marveled at the things that were told by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. We get too familiar with the Christmas story. We lose the sense of awe that it should produce. We lose the sense of, of how remarkable it is that God became a man and entered into human history. And we lose the excitement and enthusiasm that we have a Savior, that there is forgiveness for sins, and that it is a free gift. And this is good news for everyone, and everyone needs to know it. And we don't need to just hold it in and say, well, I'm not going to tell my neighbor or so-and-so because they're not going to like it. We're not too excited about the fact that there's forgiveness of sin and the Savior has come. But we need to go back and look at the shepherds, and that needs to be the kind of attitude we have. The Savior has come. How exciting. We have freedom now, real freedom, because we have a Savior. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be reminded of the historical truthfulness of the gospel, that what we do know fits the context of what the Scripture says and 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 what we can validate is verifiable and that we can trust in your word because it is your word and you have revealed this to us. And above all, Father, let us uh, have a fresh understanding in our lives of what we have in a Savior, that he has come and he died on the cross for our sins that we might have eternal life, that it's not just Christmas is not just a time of... of uh, of gift-giving in a time of family activity, but it's a time to rejoice that we have a Savior and we have eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ came to die for you. He paid the penalty for your sins to give you a free gift of eternal life if you simply accept it from him, trust in him, believe in him that he died for your sins. This is your opportunity to do so, an opportunity that if you avail yourself of, you, it will change your life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge each, as, each of us with what we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.